Turn with me, if you will, to Genesis chapter 27. text this morning is Genesis 27, verse 41, down through 28, verse 9. 2741 to 28, verse 9. <coughs> Last year when the movie American Beauty won five Oscars, I asked someone if it was worth seeing. His answer was thought-provoking. He said, no. I think the only reason people like that movie is that it depicts a family so totally dysfunctional that it makes our dysfunctional families look normal. (laughs) I never did go see the movie. But this week while studying about Isaac's family, I recalled that comment. For here is one messed up family. Unfortunately, we may see something of ourselves here. I hope we will understand how God in his grace intends to transform us from being like these people. Well, let me read the text. This is right after the incident where Jacob and his mother Rebecca scheme and connive and figure out a way to steal the blessing that Isaac had wickedly determined that he would give to Esau, though he knew God had chosen Jacob. Picking up with verse 41. Esau held a grudge against Jacob because of the blessing his father had given him. He said to himself, the days of mourning for my father are near, and then I will kill my brother Jacob. When Rebekah was told what her older son Esau had said, she sent for her younger son Jacob and said to him, Your brother Esau is consoling himself with the thought of killing you. Now then, my son, do what I say. Flee at once to my brother Laban in Haran. Stay with him for a while until your brother's fury subsides. When your brother is no longer angry with you and forgets what you did to him, I'll send word for you to come back from there. Why should I lose both of you in one day? Then Rebekah said to Isaac, her husband, I'm disgusted with living because of these Hittite women. If Jacob takes a wife from among the women of this land, from Hittite women like these, my life will not be worth living. So Isaac called for Jacob and blessed him and commanded him, Do not marry a Canaanite woman. Go at once to Paddan Aram, to the house of your mother's family, Father Bethuel. Take a wife for yourself there from among the daughters of Laban, your mother's brother. May God Almighty bless you and make you fruitful and increase your numbers until you become a community of peoples. May he give you and your descendants the blessing given to Abraham so that you may take possession of the land where you now live as an alien, the land God gave to Abraham. Then Isaac sent Jacob on his way, and he went to Paddan Aram to Laban, son of Bethuel, the Aramean the brother of Rebekah, who was the mother of Jacob and Esau. Now Esau learned that Isaac had blessed Jacob and had sent him to Paddan Aram to take a wife from there, and that when he blessed him, he commanded him, do not marry a Canaanite woman, and that Jacob had obeyed his father and mother and had gone to Paddan Aram. Esau then realized how displeasing the Canaanite women were to his father Isaac, so he went to Ishmael, 
and married Mahalath, the sister of Nebaioth, the daughter of Ishmael, son of Abraham, in addition to the wives he already had. Well, it's an interesting text to figure out what to do with and what God would uh, teach us from this. Let me just boil it down to two truths that I would set before you this morning. The first is this. The rebellion can pose as piety. Rebellion can pose as piety. We've all, all heard the expression, all that glitters is not gold. Well, that seems especially true in the religious realm. All that shines brightly on Sunday doesn't necessarily prove to be pure throughout the rest of the week. Indeed, even blatant rebellion can pose as wonderful piety. I think that's what we observe repeatedly in this text. Actions with some outward show of piety Things made to sound so good, which in fact only veil a rebellious, disobedient heart. Let me give you three examples. Take, for example, Esau's concern for his aged father. Esau expects his father Isaac to die soon. Isaac had said he was going to die soon. The truth is he lived another 43 years, but he didn't know that. So Esau, expecting his father to die, wouldn't do anything to upset him. He knows his days of grieving are not far away, so he's already concerned how to show his father respect. But meanwhile, we read that he's consoling himself with thoughts of revenge. The days of mourning for my father are near, and then... I will kill my brother Jacob. Esau was driven by his passions the last time we saw him, and he hasn't changed a bit. Oh, there's a show of piety, concern for his aged father. But inside he is filled with hatred. John Calvin was right when he wrote, It hence appears more clearly that the previous tears of Esau were far from being the effect of true repentance. Here a lively picture of a hypocrite is set before us. He pretends that the death of his father would be to him a mournful event. Doubtless it is a religious duty to mourn over a deceased father. But it was a mere pretense on his part to speak of the day of mourning when in his haste to execute the impious murder of his brother. The death of his father seemed to come only too slowly, and he rejoiced at the prospect of its approach. You see, in Esau we see the same principle. Sinful rebellion can pose as wonderful piety. Second example, look at Rebecca. Oh, Rebecca is very distressed over the fact that her older son Esau has married two pagan women. In verse 46, we hear her say to her husband, I'm disgusted with living because of these Hittite women. 
And so the thought that her other son, Jacob, might follow in his brother's footsteps and marry even more of these pagan women is just too much to bear. She says to her husband, Isaac, if Jacob takes a wife from among the women of this land, the Hittite women like these, my life will not be worth living. Wow, what a godly woman. What passion for godly daughters-in-law. And so Isaac, convinced by his wife's interest in the future of their family, consents to send Jacob away to Laban's house, his uncle, there to find a wife. Oh, but wait a minute. We left something out here. Indeed, Rebecca left something out when she spoke to her husband. For her primary concern was not to find a godly wife for Jacob at all. Her concern was to get Jacob out of town before his brother killed him. Killed him for the little plot which she herself dreamed up. And now says to Jacob, for what you have done, Jacob. <laughs> Though it was her idea. Oh, all this pious-sounding plea is just one more example of Rebecca manipulating her husband to get what she wants. Remember last time we saw her acting as if the end justifies the means? She was a scheming old woman back then, and she still is. As one writer notes, it seems that in this family, the plain, unvarnished truth was consistently in short supply. But Rebecca's sinful rebellion posed as piety. Oh, I don't want these pagans as daughters-in-law. One more example of this hypocrisy. Right at the end of the passage, Esau takes another wife. When his father Jacob sent his brother, when his father Isaac sent his brother Jacob away to Laban's house to find a wife, Esau suddenly realized how much his father disliked these pagan Hittite women that he had married. By the way, can you believe this? Just now, when Esau is a grown man, his father is about to die, he thinks. He's a middle-aged man. He suddenly realizes for the first time that marrying a pagan woman was not acceptable. Where has he been? Where has dad been? Where has mom been? How can he not have known this? But apparently, he didn't. Anyway, upon learning that, Esau decides to take a third wife, a woman named Mahalath from the family of his uncle Ishmael. Now, it's really not clear what Esau's intentions were here. Scholars disagree. There are two different possibilities. It may be that in his anger against Jacob and against God and against his parents and against the whole world that Esau married this woman out of pure spite. He said, oh, you didn't like my first two wives? Ha, I'll marry another one you don't like. In other words, pure rebellion. That's one possibility. 
The other possibility is that we give him the benefit of the doubt. Maybe Esau was trying to please his father. And he realized his father didn't like these local pagan Hittite women. And so he decides to marry someone from within the family. But if that's the case, it only shows how clueless Esau was. For Ishmael was the one already rejected by God. This was not the godly line that he wanted to marry into. Ian Dugo takes this position. Listen to his explanation. As for Esau, when he heard of Jacob's departure in search of a spiritually suitable wife, he seemed to be convicted of his sin in marrying into the pagan families that filled the land. But even then, he doesn't seem to know how to make it better. In fact, Esau simply compounds his earlier sin by marrying an Ishmaelite girl to add to his Hittite wives. Isn't this a vivid picture of the way of the heart without God? Even when such a person tries to do the things that are moral and upright, they simply increase their sin because they do not understand the nature of God or the depth of their own depravity. You see, from way back when he sold his birthright, Esau was not concerned about God's covenant. He wasn't back then, and he's still not. He's oblivious to God's ways. But even given the benefit of the doubt, Esau only demonstrates again how sinful rebellion poses as piety. Oh, dear people, this is still a problem in our day. You face the temptation, and so do I. It is possible for us to pursue our own rebellious agenda and at the same time baptize our behavior and present it as a, with an air of piety. And we may be successful and pull it off, and everyone may be awestruck at our pious demeanor. But God's not impressed. Man may look on the outside, but God searches hearts. Or I think of another biblical example of the same truth. The example of King Saul, the first king of Israel before David. God sent his prophet Samuel to deliver this message to King Saul. I want you to go and attack the Amalekites and totally destroy everything that belongs to them. Do not spare them. Put to death men and women and children and infants and cattle and sheep and camels and donkeys. You see, these were the enemies of God, the ancient enemies of God, a wicked people, and God said, go and destroy them. And so King Saul went and did that. Almost. He went and destroyed them. Oh, but when he saw those fine, healthy cattle and those flocks of sheep, he said, well, let's just destroy the sick ones. But the prized ones we'll take back home. And when he captured the Amalekite king, he just couldn't bring himself to kill him. He took him prisoner, a trophy of his prowess. And so Saul took the spoils of battle home with him. You see, he liked his methods better than God's methods. 
And so when Samuel came, the prophet of God came to see King Saul. Even as Saul was telling him of his great success, how I've gone and done what God said, Samuel says, what's that bleating of the sheep that I hear? And what was Saul's reply? Oh, I kept them to sacrifice to the Lord. Rebellion posing as piety. Do you remember? Remember God's response through Samuel? Does the Lord delight in burnt offerings and sacrifices as much as in obeying the voice of the Lord? To obey is better than sacrifice. For that disobedience, God took the kingdom away from Saul. You see, in Saul, we learn the same thing that we learn here in Genesis. Rebellion can pose as piety, but God searches hearts. Folks, God doesn't want your success. He wants your faithfulness. He's not impressed with how pious everyone thinks you are. He wants your obedience. He doesn't need all the help that you can offer him. He just wants your heart. And if you refuse to submit your stubborn will to him, all the worship services you set in, and all the money that you give to support God's work, and all the hours you spend reading your Bible, and all the prayers you pour out to heaven, don't mean a thing. They're only act, outward acts of piety by which we avoid the real issue a sinful, rebellious heart. This morning I call you to humble yourself before the Lord as David reminds us in his great prayer of confession in Psalm 51 you do not delight in sacrifice or else I would bring it. You do not take pleasure in burnt offerings the sacrifices of God are a broken spirit. A broken and contrite heart, O oh God, you will not despise. Oh, but there's another lesson we need to learn here. For everything's not all bleak in this passage. Which brings us to our second point. The faithful Rest on God's promise and do his will. The faithful rest on God's promise and do his will. Last time we studied Genesis, we saw just a glimmer of light in all this darkness. Not that there was anyone in the whole account that was without sin. It was a miserable mess of folks. Jacob and Esau and Isaac and Rebekah, and every one of them wicked. But then in the middle of Isaac's sinful rebellion, in the middle of his stubborn determination, I will bless my favorite son. I don't care what God himself says. I don't care what my wife says. I don't care what anybody says. I will do what I will do. And in the midst of that, he was tricked. And he suddenly realized that he had given the blessing to Jacob, God's chosen, not to Esau, his chosen. 
And when he realized that, there was a change of heart. For he refused to recant his blessing. Esau came and said, Father, do something. And Isaac said, no, I have blessed Jacob, and he will be blessed. Jacob seems in that moment to have experienced repentance and faith when caught in a sinful act, to turn around and take a different stand and say, no, I will stand with what I have done by God's good providence, though I intended to do the opposite. Oh, but was it real? Esau, too, cried crocodile tears of repentance, but it didn't mean a thing. What about Isaac? Was this repentance real? Well, this week we learn. For here we see that Isaac begins to act like a faithful one. Resting in God's promise and doing what God said. Here we see that his true repentance produced a seeking after the will of God to be done in God's way. That's exactly what Isaac does now. I think we can see that reality, which isn't obvious to you at first, but I think we can see the reality of this change by comparing two things. Comparing the blessing that Isaac gave to Jacob when he thought he was giving it to Esau, and the blessing that now in chapter 28 he gives to Jacob, knowing that this is Jacob whom God has chosen and intentionally giving the blessing to him. Supposedly the same blessing. One given in a sinful state of mind, one given after what appears to be repentance. If we compare those two, we see that there's a difference. Look at the first one. Turn back to Genesis 27, probably just a page or so. Back verse 27 to 29. Let me read it again. This is Isaac with Jacob before him, who he thinks is Esau because he's been dressed up like Esau. He's got the goat's hair on him to make him feel hairy like Esau. He's got Esau's shirt on him to make him smell like Esau. He's got Esau, the dinner that Esau fixed to make it to look like he's Esau. Here's, here's Isaac about to bless what he thinks is Esau, but it's really Jacob. And listen to his blessing. When Jacob went to him and kissed him, when Isaac caught the smell of his clothes, he blessed him and said, Ah, the smell of my son is like the smell of a field that the Lord has blessed. May God give you the heavens due and the earth's richness and abundance of grain and new wine. May nations serve you and peoples bow down to you. Be Lord over your brothers. And may the sons of your mother bow down to you. May those who curse you be cursed and those who bless you be blessed. There's no doubt that what we see here is Isaac's rebellious heart posing as piety. He refuses to give his blessing to Jacob, whom God has identified as the chosen one. Instead, he secretly plotted to give it to Esau, his favorite son, because he was driven by his own appetites. He liked Esau's venison. And so look at the blessing he gives. 
First notice that it focuses on his son, not on the Lord. Ah, the smell of my son. Like the feel the Lord is blessed. Isn't my boy great? And then notice what he promises. Wealth. The earth's richness. An abundance of grain. An abundance of new wine. May you be rich. And then he promises in power. May nations serve you. May people bow down before you. May you be the Lord over your brothers. The very thing he knew was not God's will. May your mother's sons, there's only one, it's Jacob, one other one. May your mother's sons bow down to you. Power. Power. And finally blesses him with security. May those who bless you be blessed and those who curse you be cursed. Now all that has the sound of piety. It certainly promises Esau preeminence over his brother. But may I suggest that what Isaac really gave to his son was a secularized version of the covenant made to Abraham. A secularized version. Power and wealth. That's different than the focus of the real promise. And we see that real promise, that real blessing, the promise made to Abraham in chapter 28. Now here's Isaac when he's about to send Jacob, who he now knows has his blessing. And here's, uh, here's Isaac about to send him off to Laban's house to find a wife. And now he knowingly bestows on him the blessing, what would appear to be the same blessing, but listen to it, it's different. Chapter 28, verse 3 and 4. May God Almighty, El Shaddai is the word, bless you and make you fruitful and increase your numbers until you become a community of peoples. May he give you and your descendants the blessing given to Abraham so that you may take possession of the land where you now live as an alien the land God gave to Abraham. This is almost exactly the same words that we read in the blessing given to Abraham back in chapter 12 and 15 and 17 and the earlier portion of this book. First, God, may God make you a great community of peoples. This is the promise of many descendants. Descendants as many as the sand of the seashores, the stars of the heavens. But this is not just a, 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 a promise of many children. This is a promise of a holy nation, the true Israel, the people of God. Indeed, the word used here for community, the Hebrew word kahal, is the Old Testament word for church. Community of God's people. Then he, secondly, blessing in verse Isaac says, gives to him the blessing of Abraham. Now this is not just a general term for the whole covenant promise. This is the heart of the covenant promise. The promise way back from chapter 12 of a holy seed. I will give to you and your seed singular all these things, God said. This is the promise of Messiah. 
As the New Testament explains in Galatians, this is talking about Christ Jesus, the singular seed of Abraham through whom the whole covenant would be fulfilled and all the world would be blessed. May that blessing of Abraham be yours, he said. And then finally, Isaac promises Jacob the land of promise, the land given to Abraham so many years ago, the land in which Abraham had lived for 100 years and Isaac had lived for 80 years as strangers and pilgrims, the land in which Jacob would continue to live as an alien. But as we saw before, this promise of a land is only a token of God's blessing that his people will inherit the heaven and earth in due time. Remember, that's what Hebrews tells us Abraham was looking for. He was looking for nothing less than the eternal city of God, not just a piece of real estate. Can you see the difference between these two blessings? Oh, they're similar in many ways. They both invoke the name of God, for example. But Isaac's fleshly blessing focuses on wealth and power for his favorite son. While Isaac's blessing after his repentance focuses on God's promise to raise up a mighty congregation who will inherit the earth in which they live as pilgrims because of the holy seed the Messiah who is to come. Oh, there may be similarities, but these are very different. When Isaac rebelliously tried to bless his favorite son Esau, he was determined to do what he pleased in the way he pleased to do it, and all that mattered to him was more money and more power over his brother. When Isaac repented, everything changed. Suddenly the blessings sound like Abraham's blessing, the Abrahamic covenant of old. The blessings focus on God's plan and God's people and God's will to bless the whole earth. There's a difference. Rebellion posing as piety or faithfulness that rests on God's promise and does God's will. Isaac had a change of heart. Well, brothers and sisters, this is the line of demarcation between the true work of God and the counterfeits that are all around us. Everywhere people invoke the name of God. Everywhere people pray for God's blessing. The issue, though, is are we resting in God's word and doing what he says? Some say, take possession of God's blessing, whatever you dare to ask for. Is that God's promise? Is that God's will for us? Well, yes and no. Certainly God's promises are more than our eyes have seen or our ears have heard or our minds can even conceive of. Yes, they're great. But God is not at our disposal just to give us what we please, wealth and power and and authority over people that we don't like. No. We're at his disposal. And the faithful rest in his promise and do what he said. Some say we need to transform our culture. Is that God's will for us? Is that his promise to us? Well, yes and no. Jesus is king. His lordship extends to every facet of life, every thought of man. And his lordship must be proclaimed to the ends of the earth. But his kingdom is not about political power 
or legislative genius or military might. That's not what his kingdom is about. He's pleased to transform people one at a time from the inside out by the power of the gospel. The faithful rest themselves in his promise and do his will. While I was away last week, I read the little book, The Prayer of Jabez. Everybody seems to be reading it. Somebody gave it to me. One review review of the book said, well, it's more of the name it and claim it mentality of the day. Another said, oh, this is a life-changing message of the power of prayer. Well, which is it? Depends on how you understand what you read. If you think saying a little prayer every day will cause God to bless you and give you success in the pursuit of your own wealth and power, you're sadly mistaken. If that's what you read there, you're way off base. Oh, but if you understand that God has called us to advance his kingdom way beyond what we can personally guarantee, and God is pleased that we ask him and trust him for such blessing, and God alone can empower us and protect us in this task, and if you understand that the nature, that that's the nature of the covenant blessing given to Abraham, which we have now inherited, which now has been fulfilled in Christ. And if in this little book you have wonderful encouragement to dare to trust God to do what he said, then it's a wonderful thing. But the principle is still true. Rebellion composes piety. But the faithful rest in the promise and do God's will. So what's God's will for us? Well, I'll give you a hint. Today is Pentecost Sunday. On this day, God was pleased to demonstrate the victory of Christ's work in his death and resurrection by pouring out his spirit on his church. On this day, God fulfilled the promise made to Abraham that through his seed, blessing would come on the whole world. For on this day, people from every tribe and nation, every people group and culture, every continent and the islands of the sea, every race and nationality and language, on this day the whole world began to hear the good news. That God sent his son into the world, not to condemn it, but to save it. That Jesus died to save sinners and rose again in power and victory. And that all who entrust themselves to Jesus will be saved. Completely forgiven. Adopted into the family of God. And made heirs of eternal blessing. Oh, God's will is crystal clear. That this gospel be proclaimed to the ends of the earth so that those God has chosen might be saved. And that the truth of this gospel be proclaimed and understood and digested and applied by every child of God until the Holy Spirit completely conforms us to the image of our Savior, Jesus. Oh, there are all kinds of religious things that we might pursue instead of this agenda. We can labor long hours to try to add some little religious element into our secular society. Maybe we take great sense of accomplishment if we get a moment of silence added to a public meeting. 
Or we can become the apostles of tolerance, announcing because God loves everybody, we shouldn't criticize anybody's behavior. That's a lot easier than talking about repentance and sin and rebellion. Or we can become messengers of encouragement and peace to the world while carefully avoiding any call to radical repentance, self-denial, or costly discipleship. But this morning, on the authority of God's word, his text in Genesis, I tell you that such religious activity is a waste of time. It ignores that sinful rebellion often poses as piety. God demands radical repentance. It fails to see that God's faithful ones rest in his promise and go do his will. See, the blessing of God is not found wherever we want to put it. It wasn't for Isaac. It wasn't for us. It's not just whatever we want it to be. No, the blessing of God is found where God put it in the promise of the gospel. Jesus Christ, son of Abraham, which is now worked out in us by the life-giving power of the spirit of Pentecost, who leads us down this narrow road of discipleship, a road of repentance and faith and obedience, walked for centuries by faithful pilgrims from Abraham, to you. For faithful ones, rest in the promise and do what God said. Amen. Oh, Father, I pray as we look at these, as we think about these characters in your word, we see such sinfulness and such rebellion and such uh, deceit with such half-heartedness. Oh, Lord, we see ourselves there. And I thank you, Father, that we also see your mighty grace working there. That even in the midst of sinfulness, that you can cut through it all and cause someone to come to repentance, as you did with Isaac. And that you can teach us how that repentance, that faithfulness, looks very different from all that masks itself as piety going on around it. Oh God, make us faithful. Give us wisdom to sort through the difficult issues. May we not be satisfied with being religious or having a good reputation. Lord, may we be humble and faithful to you walk in your ways rest in the Savior love your people do what you said oh grant us great faith in Jesus we know that in the gospel is everything Lord that you've given us we have nothing else but we look for nothing else we rest ourselves in our Savior